Welcome to Probate Weekly. I'm Bill Gross, the LA Probate Expert. We get together every Thursday, 4 p.m. to talk about all things probate. We usually have a, uh, um, a expert in the business, attorney, vendor, somebody who can add value to uh, our discussion. And today, we're really privileged to have a real-life probate attorney based in one of the finest cities in America, San Diego, California, Zach Whitman. Zach, welcome to our call today. Thank you for having me. So, Zach, you're part of a firm in San Diego, right? You're not a sole practitioner, but you're part of a firm? Yeah, correct. I'm with uh, Antonio Miranda. We're predominantly known for our divorce litigation in San Diego, uh, but we do have a department for probate, estate planning, and uh, predominantly probate litigation. So just for those who are listening, he has a little more of a kind of a bigger firm look than some of the other people who are sole practitioners, which is good. It's good to have there, you know, every attorney, like every realtor is a little different how we do business. So Zach, give us a little background. Where'd you grow up and how'd you get into the practice of law? Yeah, I'm originally from Minnesota. Grew up in the Twin Cities area, uh, went to the University of Minnesota for law school, and kind of just found my way into law. It's a fam- kind of a family business. My dad's an attorney, my brother's an attorney, my uncle's an attorney. It's kind of the thing to do. Um, originally pursued being a sports agent. That was why I went to law school, was to be a sports agent. Figured out that's not as glamorous as Jerry Maguire makes it seem, and then... <laughs> Ended up uh, moving west, followed my wife out to California, and and then got licensed to practice law here and hit the ground running. Good for you. And so, and you give us a little background, why the firm you're with now? What What is it about? Obviously, you could be a sole practitioner, you could work for a company. What is it about? I, th- I think I would describe them as a regional firm. Uh, what is it about the firm that attracts you as a business person to work there rather than uh, as a sole practitioner or a bigger corporate type firm? Well, I think what is great about Antonio Miranda is is we truly are litigators. Everybody in this firm is a litigation attorney, whether you practice in estate planning or more of a transactional based predominant practice, everybody has to litigate. It's what we do here. And having litigation experience and knowing the ins and outs of the court system makes us all that much more experienced and better at the rest of our practice, being a better estate planner because you know the pitfalls of the litigation. So knowing that the reputation we carry as litigation really drew me to this firm. Um, I've come from a background of corporate transactional mergers, acquisitions up in Silicon Valley. Having worked in probate court, I knew how important it was going to be to get additional litigation experience. So that's what really drew me to Antonio Miranda. I think it's interesting we answer the question because some attorneys will say the opposite. They either administer or they litigate and they'll make a case. And those are typically sole practitioners. And I, I find when they're larger firms, they like to have their fingers in a couple of pies, not just as the firm, but individual attorneys. And I, I'm guessing that's because you can draw on resources on one side or the other that as a sole practitioner, you wouldn't have access to. Yeah, correct. It it's, makes you better at the other aspects of your job. Being an estate planner that's terrified of probate court, you're not going to know how to structure your, your consultations or your documents to make sure they will uphold challenges. You don't know if you're how to visualize if your client's being unduly influenced or not, if you haven't attacked it from the other side or defended a trust from undue influence uh, claims. So knowing how to litigate the cases makes it better estate plans to have a more secure, protected document. That's the same reason I encourage all real estate agents to be in the space to go to court at least a few times to see the process because you'll see things that they'll tell you can't be done, but you'll realize things 
aren't always by the book, but it's more about getting a feel for what happens and understanding the process. So I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think in my mind, whether you actually are the main litigator or you occasionally do some litigation, if you're doing a state plan, I think it's important to see the results of mistakes, whether yours or somebody else's that you're litigating. So hopefully they're all somebody else's. But uh, hopefully, you know, but you, it, your documents aren't vetted. That's the problem is you don't have a vetted document. You have downloaded a template off of Lexis or Westlaw or wherever you get your templates from, and you don't look at the entirety of the document. You don't know the interaction between provision one and provision seven and what's going to happen with that documents get put in front of a judge. So knowing right. your documents are, are as bulletproof as possible is, is crucially important in this area of law. Now, I oftentimes I do more in probate being a real estate agent than in the state planning. And people ask you questions, you know, what, what would happen if this? And I would say, well, the judge has discretion. Like the judge can pretty much do whatever they want to do. Now, they may get overruled or appealed or there's things that happen. But 99.9% of the time, if the, George, if the judge says the sky is green, the sky is green and there's not much you're going to do about it, correct? Yeah. And fortunately, down in San Diego, our probate department is about as cream of the crop as you get. It's the gold standard and um, California probate, from my opinion, having worked in Santa Clara County and we appear across the state, we're pretty fortunate that we have very, very good judges down here that don't get overturned on appeal very often. But if across the county and the country, or I guess the state, I mean, there, there are a lot of areas that probate judges is where your initial assignment is. You're first assigned to the bench and you start in probate because it's not the glamorous criminal law or family law for those counties. So you often have relatively inexperienced judges making rulings and the law gives them very broad discretion to make a ruling. And very broad. It's kind of terrifying at times, the level of discretion these judges have, especially in more rural counties. Um, you're, not, it is, you're not sure what the judge is gonna say. They're not, whether they follow the rule, the typical rule or typical rulings is very stressful. Um, we're pretty fortunate in San Diego. Our, our three judges are excellent, excellent judges. And let's hope they're watching and they appreciate your kind words. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> That's why we're saying it. So um, describe San Diego County's court system now versus pre-COVID. How open is it? What restrictions are there? And and uh, how does that compare in the last month or two? Is it opening up? or? Most people still typically appear virtually. Um, just from a convenience factor, it's one of the few counties that you don't have to get a court order permission to appear virtually. Um, certain counties such as Riverside or San Bernardino require court order prior to remote appearances. So we're still pretty virtual. I mean, if it's open, if you want to go in person, you certainly can go in person. I always appear in person because it's right across the street. Um, but it, it, there's a convenience factor that San Diego is, is maintained for remote appearances. Um, but trials, you're going to be in person. <laughs> if you're not, you're making a mistake. So I appreciate that it's across the street and it's a selling point, but I'm going to guess it's more than that. I'm going to guess that by going there also, you're a little more effective. You know, your client's paying a lot of money for your service. My experience as a real estate agent is I'm much more effectively able to bid on property or list the property when I'm there in person versus online. Is that your experience too? Yeah, that's mine as well. It's it's easier to have a conversation with the judge. You build a better rapport. They tend to know you better. Um, San Diego, the, the legal community and probate litigation is not very large down here. There's probably 10, 15 of us that really do this at a high level. 
So we see the same three judges every every day, every week. They know us. Um, it's pretty it's pretty helpful to be there in person. I prefer it. I think it's an easier conversation. When pre-COVID, I was going to LA County every day. Can't do that now, a lot of reasons. But um, but what I noticed was there were the attorneys like you, like you that were there regularly, and the judges recognized them. And I could see they would give them certain latitude certain privilege within the law, but still, you know, they'll trust them, they'll accept that though, you know, versus attorneys who didn't know, not only were they not familiar, but kind of, you could tell they didn't really know what they're doing. The judge is like, hey, that's the rule, sorry. Uh, I'll, you know, go back to go back to start. Um, is that your experience as well in San Diego? It's kind of a double-edged sword, I would say. Sometimes I can get away with a little bit more. I get a little bit more leniency. My client maybe gets the benefit of a doubt a little bit more, but also they held me to, I think, a higher standard. Mm. Having seen me in there so often, if my petition comes in and I have four or five defects, they're going to chastise me a little bit more than maybe somebody they don't see all that often that would remind them, check your examiner notes, counsel, instead of kind of scolding me. So it, it does come with some benefit, but also I do feel at times the court does hold us to a higher standard. What percentage of attorneys go to court and don't even know there is such a thing as examiner notes? <laughs> More than you would expect. It's shocking, <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it shocking? Yeah, I, it, it's it's quite shocking that they don't know to check the examiner notes and cure defects. And um, I usually get a good smile out of it, but um, they're not they're not enjoying their time <laughs> as much as I am. And it's what's funny to me now. So what we're talking about is when when uh, attorneys file papers or petitioners file papers to the court. In the court, there's somebody who reviews the documents before the judge sees it, called the probate examiner. In LA County, we call them probate attorneys. In some counties, they call them probate clerks. Um, so the different names for the job of, and, and often they're attorneys uh, or they're entry-level attorneys who are reviewing the documents and kind of eyeballing everything for the judge and pointing out the key parts and then looking for common mistakes and pointing them out ahead of time. And in most counties, LA for sure, San Diego for sure, as a system where there's what he's referring to as examiner notes or in California, in LA County called probate notes, they publish what those defects are. It's kind of like turning in your paper in high school and the teacher says, well, I'll review your paper and you have another week to correct all the mistakes if you want to get an A. You know, I was kind of student that would take the paper and correct it. They, sh they found 10 typos. I corrected those 10, retyped it, got an A. Um, but um, there are attorneys who don't even know their notes and they're taking big fees for these probates. It happens all the time. So it's not just me saying that. Uh, and of course, Zach, we don't want to disparage your, your colleagues. But what we do want to do is raise the standard of performance of your colleagues. And I think rightfully so we can say it is surprising how many attorneys are like in real sharp looking dress suits from decent firms and they even know there's probate notes. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's frustrating because as an opposing counsel, I would like the case to advance. And if there are incurable defects or, or major defects that such a service or process or notice of hearings that you can't wait, those are true defects that are flaws in your petition, it will slow up the case by two to four months because you'll get continued till the come back in four months from now at the next available court date because there's only three judges, they're busy. Um, so it, it, it just drags on and on and probate's already slow to begin with. And you cause these types of errors that make it even slower. It's, it's quite frustrating, um, to advance cases. 
not want to hold up the probate judge, right? It's like, it's like a train going downhill, get out of the way. That train's going down. If you're the guy holding it up, they're not going to be happy. True or false? Uh, true, very much true. But sometimes it's very much a, a useful tactic. <laughs> I will say, yeah. I, I, it, you, by law, you're entitled to evidentiary hearings for so many different issues in probate. So if you, if you want to contest probates, it's very easy to contest and drag out the process um, for, for contested appointment or a, a litigated case. But um, yeah, you don't want to see, if you don't want it to go slower, you need to do everything you can to make sure you can get a ruling as quick as possible because otherwise you're going to be waiting a couple more months. In LA County, when I would see pro per, pro se, people without attorneys, do the case on their own. It was like there were 10% that knew what they're doing, followed the rules, followed the paperwork, did a good job. Usually they're like engineers or accountants or maybe an attorney who practiced somewhere else. But nine percent of the time, it was like stuck in the mud. They didn't know what the process was. Uh, and, and I think it's not even just that they don't know what they're doing, but they also hold up their own process, which gives other heirs, other family members time to get upset and object. Is that what you see in San Diego as well? Yeah, time to object or um, creditor claims have additional time to make a creditor's claim against the estate. The, the biggest issue I run into often in that situation is I get retained later on in the case because they can't figure out, the, the proper can't figure out how to do it. And by the time they finally contact an attorney, house is in foreclosure. Right. It, it, because it took them so long to get to the attorney stage or clear the defects before the judge can give them any ruling, Properties in foreclosure, and we're, we're in a rush. And if we can fix it, we can. But more often than not, we're looking at a foreclosure and not a whole lot we can do about it at times. Big difference from LA to Orange County is in LA, in my experience, if there's equity, almost all the judges will do ex partes and hold a foreclosure to support the state. In Orange County, in my experience, most of the time, the judges will say, hey, you had your notice, you had your period of time, these are the laws. Good luck. You're on your own. What's it like in San Diego? We have three judges. Are they all different, or is, is there a similar pattern? Well, we it's we have three judges now. Judge Boswick just announced his retirement, so we'll have a new judge stepping into the bench in October. I don't know what Judge Belsky will do once he takes the bench, um, but I do know Judge Sherling and Judge Kelly will grant ex parte if necessary. I've gone into both of them in emergency hearings to save the property, get limited authority. You have to get a little creative. You might not get your general petition appointed. You might need to go in special administration with limited authority to save the property and negotiate with the lender or get it listed in a, essentially a fire sale if needed. So the San Diego County will, will grant ex parties if you tee it up properly. Um, I think that leniency we talked about earlier, if I come in and they know it's me, there's it's a good chance I'll get it granted versus somebody else because I've done it before and they see how it works. Um, I know Orange County, a lot of times you're going to be dealing with a magistrate versus a, a city a city child judge. So they are more hesitant to make aggressive rulings versus a, a judge that knows they have cover. to, right. to make. So just to break down a little bit what you just said for those who are newer on the call. So what he's, what he's saying is they come in the 11th hour, they try it on their own, they were stuck in the mud. Their foreclosure's three days away. They walk into Zach's office on their knees crying, help! And so basically what you can do is file, the, the term he used was um, special administrator, special meaning, administrator. meaning you're not really approving the estate to act on behalf of, of you're not approving the petitioner on behalf of the state, 
but for special circumstances, i.e., to get the property sold, give us the power, and we'll make sure all the money is kept under the control of the court by requiring court confirmation and other procedures. So there's a procedure to do that. And when he comes in and suggests that whole package, and the judge sees him, and he's a good-looking guy, he's dressed nice, but more importantly, he has a track record. They go, yeah, okay, we'll give that a shot. And you'll see petitioners you know, on their own, or even attorneys that don't know what they're doing, not teed up properly, and the judge will say, no, nah, it's, it's not going to work. Because they know, if you don't know to use a special administrator, they're not going to give you authority. They don't want you to sell the house and take run off of the money or whatever is going to happen. The, um, judges, uh, the judges don't want to always tell you the answer. They don't want to come up with the idea of their own. They want you to come up with the idea. And if you come up with a clever idea, they're, they're willing to entertain it. Um, if there's enough legal precedent and, and foundation for them to make the ruling, they, they certainly will. I had one just recently that I kind of puzzled Judge Kelly, and she said I had to go talk to the examiners and see if this is something we could even do. And turned out they could. I kind of just threw a bunch of theories against the wall, and one of them stuck, and it worked. We saved the property from foreclosure and and got it sold. So you, you got to get creative with it. Um, but if you come with enough logic and reasoning and law, the judge will will typically grant it. It seems to me that they almost like it. Like I, I almost saw like this law professor's student kind of, oh, wow, you came up with a good one there. Okay, good. We'll give it a shot, right? You Well thought out, well presented. Okay, good. Versus, no, that just doesn't smell right. So we're going to say, no. It, there's, there's a little dynamic there of, I think they flash back to the days in law school is kind of what I would say. Sure. Um, okay, hey, look, this is meant to be participative. The reason why we do a Zoom call is so you can ask questions, bring your challenges, bring your, case, your questions here to a real live attorney. When I give advice, I have to say all the time, I'm not an attorney. Zach is. Um, so he can answer questions as it relates to California probate law in particular. Um, so feel free to put in the chat box if you're watching this on the Zoom. Uh, I'm sorry, watching it on live stream on YouTube or Facebook. We have questions there we can answer as well. And if you're doing this afterwards on the replay, put the questions there. Either I can answer them or I'll get somebody to answer them for you. So feel free to make it as participative as possible. Or if you're in the Zoom call, feel free to raise your hand and I'll call on you and we'll get you in that way. So a couple questions I saw there. One was, where are we here? Um, so, okay, DeKalb County, uh, which I believe is Georgia, open for appointments only, how can I visit? You know, Erica, I think, uh, I don't think that Zach can answer that because he's in San Diego and in Orange County, but I can say every county is different. But what I will say is whatever's available in your county is whatever's available. You wanna be the expert on what's available. So go to the court, look around, hunt around, ask questions, talk to the probate attorneys, find out what the rules are. Because if oftentimes uh, they have a video you can come in on, um, they have uh, records you can access, uh, and you want to find that out. Most people give up at this point. Eric, I would urge you to continue to be the expert in the Cobb County of what you can do, what you can't do. Um, Chris asks a long question. So if a borrower died and the house was in a trust, and the successor trustee, the kids refuse to deal with the property because it's underwater, vacant or code enforcement, liens, et cetera. How can a neighbor force the issue via litigation against the trust? So if a property is, whether it's underwater or not, if you have you know, um, safety issues, code enforcement issues, liens, but I think that's more of a real estate attorney question or more of a, is that something you get involved with at all or other attorneys your firm get involved with? Um, if it's more of a real estate neighbor to neighbor dispute, that's certainly not within the probate context. That's more of a civil civil case. Um, so not something I would be able to assist with. If it was a beneficiary of the estate having concerns about administration, 
certainly something I could assist with, but um, more of a property type dispute or a waste type claim is certainly not within my my realm. You know, some counties lickety split, see council members on it and they'll get on it. LA County, I got hit in my car by a drunk driver because I wasn't injured. The police weren't going to come here and check me out. So I, I think every county's their service levels are different and it depends on where you live and, and where the particular case is. Um, one question that came up recently is um, in a trust, obviously part of it is privacy, right? A person writes a trust, they empower the trustee, successor trustee, and they have documents that don't disclose all the assets and all the goings on of the trust. Um, there are oftentimes people who think they're heirs, spouses, children, who are specifically written out of the trust. Um, what rights, if any, does an heir or a family member who would normally be an heir, what rights, if any, do they have to investigate the assets of the trust and to see if things are being done properly, or do they? Yeah, I mean, as an as an heir at law under probate code, you'll be able to get a copy of it. You're just going to be provided a 1606 1.7 notice saying the trustor has passed away. I'm trustee. Typically provide key provisions of the trust, say here's paragraphs 1, 7, 8, 10, very random specific provisions. Um, if you think that there is questionable behavior for the creation of the trust or the trustee conduct, you can bring a petition again in probate court and demand um, copies of the documents. If you're a beneficiary of the trust, you demand accountings. So your investigation rights are pretty pretty strong as an heir. Um, I, if, if it's in San Diego County, I can get a copy of the trust. <laughs> You can come to that include the list of the assets of the trust. Yeah, usually. Oh wow, very nice to know. And and what? So if it, if a client came to you, what does it cost to get to hire you to to do those functions to represent a filing and to get to where they get the the assets? Yeah, it depends on the nature of the claims. If we are a beneficiary and we know we're a beneficiary and we just want an accounting, we're probably in the five thousand to seventy five hundred dollar mark to to do accounting demands and bring a petition for accounting. If we are invalidating a document, if we're saying this was a product of undue influence or grandma or grandpa didn't have capacity to enter into this contract, we are invalidating it. That's a much larger retainer, probably a $20,000 retainer to take a case through trial on a capacity issue is you're, you're easily looking over six figures, well over six figures. Um, <sighs> disputes are somewhere in 30 to 50 total, probably, if you take it through trial. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, let's let's hope we all have those assets so we needed to have those kind of fights. Um, Gunnar Johnson, hand up. Let's get you unmuted. And uh, how can we help you? First off, Gunnar, where are you located? Huntington Beach, California. Uh, Surf City, USA. And how can we help you? What's yep. your question? Today? Little HB and uh, Bill and Zach. Thank you for taking the question. Got a little scenario. Maybe you can help me out. Uh, 2020 in November, a person got a, a, a petition for probate. The petition was originally filed for limited authority. We are now going to start the procedure of selling the house. And in this market, it is going to be pretty much not impossible, but very, very difficult to keep buyers, you know, when the rates are going up and the prices are going down, particularly in this neighborhood where this is located. Um, so changing it from limited to uh, full authority. I know it's been done tons and tons of times. What do you think scale from one through 10, 10 being almost impossible and, or the other way around 10, 10 being very easy and one almost impossible. Where do you think my chances are? And is your case in Orange County? Is your case? Where's yeah, your no, case sorry. In? It's in LA. It's in LA. LA County. Yep. Well, if you've been appointed as a special administrator or limited administration, 
it, they have a limited authority. Right. So yeah. Yeah. You, it's it's an entirely separate petition. It's your your new D one eleven speak seeking authority under IAEA, your Independent Administration Act. If you if you tee up your your petition, if you've been granted previously, there was a basis for your your granting your authority under, under okay. limited authority. It would yeah. be the same basis. My assumption it would be your same basis for your general authority. Um, as long as you tee up your petition, you do your publication, you notice notice your new hearing date. I don't see why you wouldn't be given IAEA um, <laughs> absent other variables I may not know. I yeah. see it. I doesn't seem okay. Like I, I thought there was sort of a sort of an addendum basically that you could pop in about so, you're, you're saying pretty much doing a brand new petition. Yeah, you. I mean, I don't know what your original filing looked like. Um, yeah, I, I would assume you would need to bring bringing a new DE 111 under the same case. It's the same case. You just change your authority, okay. from limited authority to IAEA. I, I could say I've, I've been on the real estate agent side working with attorneys on this, and I've got it done regularly. And what I can say is you have to find why is it they went limited the first time. What's amazing right. is about half the time when, the, when they get the approval and the client was in the courtroom in those days, the, the judge would say, do you want limit or full? And if you need uh, limited, you'll need a $20,000 bond, full 30. You need a bond for $800,000. And the client, well, I'll go the cheaper bond. Or I don't need a bond, fine. I'll, I'll go without the, with the limit authority. And that was a big mistake. And I don't know if the attorneys were pushing the bonds or the judges. I don't know what all that was about. But um, sometimes as simple as that. Sometimes the client was bondable. And there's attorneys who will step up and get bonded for the client. Sometimes the sure. petitioners out of state can't be full authority. The attorney can step up and, and, and manage it. So find out why they went limited authority in the first place. And you yeah. have to cure that. That's the key procedure. Bring that to the attorney and then they can file a new form. But yeah. it gets done all the time. It's not a big deal. Yeah. yeah. They, I actually spoke to the attorney, the original attorney, and, and his answer was that he wanted the judge to make the decision on the property. He did I, not want that responsibility, which is like dumb as I don't know what. <laughs> you know, Zach, I hear this all the time from attorneys that they'll say, I think it's safer to be limited authority with court approval that way, the exactly. court approval, which it sounds great, but you've just lost money, you've delayed time, you've more expenses. Yep. Well, and you can't make final distribution under limited authority. You have to get IEA, you have to have your estate open for the statutory period of time for creditors to make their claims. Yeah. If, if you can get IAEA, I always prefer IAEA under Independent Administration Act, having full authority do your notice of proposed actions, sell the property like we normally do. You should have yeah. no problems. But yeah. um, knowing the local rules, San Diego County local rule, minimum $20,000 bond. So right. if you're an out-of-state person and you want to waive bond and you're not, and you show up for your first hearing and say, I waive bond and you're out of state, court's going to reject it. Local rule, you need $20,000 minimum bond. A lot of people yeah. won't know that. So um, yeah. I always grab 30 so. Yeah. Uh, can I ask another question? A real quick one. Two for the price of one gunner special today. Go ahead. <laughs> so uh, um, we have a, another promise we do where, where the air is in China. And uh, what just sent uh, with DHL, the, the NOPA form over, uh, it's investor buying the property. I'm trying to do it quicker. And I'm trying to find out if we could do an actual NOPA with DocuSign and get it back quicker. For the consent? For the yeah. notice of proposed action. But notice of proposed action, yeah. Don't see a reason not to, um, if they're consenting, um, if, right. uh, you can you can shorten that period if you, for your heirs if you're consenting. I don't, 
off the top of my head, I don't know a reason why not. Yeah. I wanted to look into it more. I certainly could. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I was on all, all the four websites for LA, Orange County, Riverside, San Diego, try to find another court, on the Superior Court website. Could yeah, not it's find not a, it anywhere. It's not a document we need a wet signature on, so I don't. Right, exactly. Don't that's that's what it says. So. Okay. Thanks so much. I saw right, IAEA pop up. IAEA means Independent Administration's Estate Act. You don't have to get court approval to do certain actions under right. the administration. That was a question. That popped yeah, up. thank you. Okay, gotcha. Perfect. Right. Thanks so much. Yeah, and so generally in California, we have two different tracks. There's the full authority, which a little bit of a misnomer. You still have to file your notice of proposed action before you can close escrow on the sale, and that becomes a strategy when you do that. But basically, you're pretty much free to go once you have the authority. And the limited means court approval, which gives people opportunity to come to court and overbid on the property. And that's those are the two different tracks, basically. So here's a question from Christopher. I love the way that we phrase this. Would it be considered legal malpractice if an attorney didn't note, review, and clear the probate notes and the appointment hearing is continued and the property is lost to foreclosure? If the property is not lost to foreclosure, but the payoff statement increases, which it does by definition, when your case is delayed 30 days, you're paying interest on the vacant property. Does a client have recourse against the attorney? In my experience, no. You're not going to get a nickel. That's just the business. No one gives a shit about the roadster Tesla. Fuck off. I don't like. Wow. Okay. Um, I don't like electric. Anyone who buys a Tesla isn't a real man. Any man with a Tesla, I could living fuck out. I don't like Teslas. They're for bitches. Bitches. The environment, and I plug it in. Your door. I have big engines and fire and fuel. So I don't give wow. a fuck about Teslas. And I don't give a fuck about the Roadster wow. Tesla. And the fact you've asked me 30 times in a row means there's something wrong with you. Wow. We just got Zoom bombs. Sorry about that. Hold on one second. Uh, that, that was fun. There's some people who just like enjoy the process of, and I'm going to, um, I'm going to, hold on one second. I'm going to lock the meeting. Don't let new people in. Okay, good. So, Okay. Yeah, we can zoom by. So we're just thinking people come in and that's a, that's a fun thing to do, I guess. Okay, so let's go back to the question. Is it legal malpractice? The attorney, because of their mistakes, delay, it causes money, maybe delay, cause foreclosure. Client wants to call it malpractice. What is it, Zach? It's just tough luck, was, right? If it was, I think I'd have less competition in the <laughs> market. Um, I think it's I think it's very bad practice. I don't know if it qualifies all the way to malpractice. Um, there are attorneys that specialize in what constitutes attorney malpractice or not. It's certainly embarrassing and something I don't want to do myself. Um, I don't know if it qualifies for full malpractice. Um, it happens all the time. Constantly. Every, uh, day. I, every day, all the time. They don't know what they're doing. Attorneys shouldn't take public cases unless they know what they're doing. And it happens, but I don't think there's any recourse for customers I'm aware of. I've seen it over and over and over again. And it's just one of those things kind of, it's sad, it's unfortunate. It's why, to me, it's so important to have, we haven't even talked about yet estate planning, why it's so important to have an estate plan to avoid probate because you're gonna save a lot of money, time, effort, expense, stress, and all that. We'll get to that in a second, but I have William Elkins, a regular on our call here with a question. Okay, William, what is up, man? Hold on, I got you muted. There you go. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, that wasn't you Zoom bombing us, was it? <laughs> no, that, that, no, that definitely wasn't me. <laughs> no, it wasn't you. <laughs> Somebody, I like, I like Tessas. <laughs> I do too. Um, 
<laughs> um, so when there's conflicting heirs and, um, you know, initially they petition and trying to see who, who gets full authority and then the judge uh, makes a decision, can those heirs still come back when during the notice of proposed action to contest the probate? Like if you have four, your brothers and sisters and everybody's petitioning the judge rules, okay, Bill, you got it, full authority. Can those can those uh, brother sister heirs come back during the notice of proposed action time and contest again? Or is it just for uh, family members that weren't aware of the sale? So I think we've got a couple moving parts. I think we probably need to clarify a few issues first. Being appointed the administrator or executor of the estate doesn't define who the heirs of the estate are. That's just the person that has been appointed by the court to be the one in charge of running it. And when they're running it, they have what's called fiduciary duties to the estate to do certain things properly, such as sell the house for fair price or sell it for top dollar. If you're going to rent a property, you need to rent it at fair market value, not to your friend down the street. So if the administrator, whoever's been appointed, if it's a sibling, a professional, um, a named executor, if they're not acting appropriately, the heirs of the estate certainly have claims against them for breaching their duties, fiduciary duties to the estate. Um, if they issue a proper notice of proposed action to sell a property for fair price, and the beneficiary, the heir of the estate, misses that window of time and does not object, you kind of missed your chance to object for that particular sale. It doesn't change distribution at the end. It is not a deciding of who gets what. It's more of I'm selling this asset court. I want to sell this asset. I'm telling them, putting the world on notice. We're going to sell this asset for this particular dollar amount. And you have your 15 day window to raise, raise your argument or complaint for why it's not valid. And if you miss that window of time, that asset can be sold, but it doesn't change the fact that that asset, the cash from that asset or sale is still sitting here in the estate's account until final distribution. So you kind of had a couple so different parts in there. So if the heir was initially denied full authority by the judge, they can't come back during the notice of proposed action and contest the sale again. Can't, Absolutely. I mean, contest. They can. No, right. Yes. Oh, they, they, can. Can. they can object because the appointment, being denied appointment, doesn't change your status as an heir. It just means you're not the one in charge. So two competing brothers want to be the one in charge. One's got really good credit and get bonded. The other one can't get bonded. Court goes with the bondable one. That doesn't mean the other heir is now out of luck. They can't bring claims against the estate or say hold the other brother accountable. You certainly still can hold them accountable for their conduct as administrator. It just doesn't mean you're the one making the decisions. You're not the one signing the listing agreement or taking it to market. The other, the other, the other sibling who's been appointed can take it to market. They still have to do it properly. So if they're selling it for 50% of the inventory appraisal value, object, please object. But, but they, can't, they can't just like contest for arbitrary reasons. Like, oh, I just still, I don't want the house sold or I, I don't like my brother or, or <laughs> you know, these, these, these crazy erroneous reasons that have nothing to do with relevant with the estate. It's just, you know, they want to be difficult. Well, they, they, they do, they'll object for whatever reason they want whether that objection hold, holds up the sale or not, it's a different th story. So you can, they make their objections all the time and I have to deal with, with, with angry people. But um, 
whether it stops me from selling the property for a fair price. As long as it's 90% of INA value, inventory appraisal value, the, the court will let you sell it. Um, but if if they're just saying, I want to be able to keep the house, well, unless it's been specifically gifted to you in a will, you're not, it's, if you have IAEA, independent authority, and the house needs to be sold, it's going to be sold. There's more often than not in probate, the property needs to be sold anyway to cover statutory fees or expenses of the estate. Almost never do you actually get to keep the property in, in administration. Thank you. This one. So I think we're talking about two different cases there. One is if it's limited authority, people can object, but once they've gone through the process and go to court, the judge, in my experience, turns to them and say, well, do you want to buy it? They advertised it. Here's the price. You just need a 10% deposit and it's yours. Do you want it or not? I've literally been in the court where the judge said that to the objectors. And the objectors, well, it should sell for 30% more. Well, great. Do you want to buy it and make money on it? Well, no. Okay. And it's been for sale for 30 days. Sorry, you can't. On full authority, my experience in LA County is anybody can object. There's no proposed action filed. And the judge will schedule some process a hearing down the road or ask them to submit something in writing and at least it will delay the it will delay the sale for some period of time is that your experience in san diego county as well yeah it, it can delay the sale if if there is a worry of losing the buyer or the market flux is going down you can go i i would take that opportunity for an ex party hearing to get a, a immediate approval of the sale ah. um, if somebody's for for no particular reason objecting if they're coming in and say, I don't like this, well, then I'm, and I'm worried I'm going to lose a buyer. A buyer's going to walk and the market's gone down 10%. I think that's a valid ex party reason basis to bring an ex party claim. But there's a reason to hire Zach right there. Everybody. That might work for me. It might not work for the next guy. Very good. I like that. Um, uh, Nazib, be patient with your hand up. Let's get you unmuted and get you in. How can we help you? Hi. Usually I've been in the business for a long time. My client chose me and I get the listing ahead of the time. But now when I'm prospecting the people like they are um, going to put the on, should I approach the attorney or I should approach the executor for the getting the listing? So that's kind of like, that's where I get stuck on the beginning of the part. So that's, you know, so Zach, I can answer that. <laughs> yeah, let me ask you from your perspective, what's what's an effective way to get you? Now, no, I don't want 30 people to call Zach later this afternoon or tomorrow for his business, but if you were advising, if you had a cousin or friend who's getting in the real estate business and they wanted to learn probate, how would you recommend them to do business development to get some business? You can wine and dine me. I, I like presents. I don't like bribes. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, when I file a petition for probate, the volume of mailers I get is unbelievable. I probably get 30 to 50 mailers from agents within a week of my petition getting filed and published. So those are all end up in the trash. Um, once the client has retained me, 95% of the time, they already have a listing agent attached. So that's how they know they need to go to probate is they call the grandma died and i know i need to sell grandma's house what do i do i call a real estate agent a real estate agent pulls title and they go oh it's in decedent's name we have to probate then they end up with the probate attorney so more often than not it's a waste of time to call them if it's a solo attorney that 
only handles one or probate at a time, maybe you have a better luck. Um, but if you send me a mailer after I petition for probate, that's in the trash. <laughs> How many emails do you get for a particular filing? I have a rule scheduled on my Outlook that it goes into a particular <laughs> inbox and I don't even see them. So um, it's- How many, phone call How many phone calls do you get? I mean, luckily I have very good receptionists that field those for me. So I managed to avoid a lot of the harassment, but there is, it, it is a, a large volume of people trying to sell the property. And so, so you're in one of the most competitive real estate markets in the country, if not the most, yeah. as well as I would imagine probate markets as well. So Nazir, to your point, you're in LA, correct? I'm in Northern California based. What county? Uh, Contra Costa. Again, very competitive market. Um, you know, I would point you, are you involved with uh, Chad Corbett's program, Probate Mastery at all? Uh, no. Free, check out Probate Mastery for everybody here, probatemastery.com. Um, and he, I host a, 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 a alumni call for him every Tuesday at noon. Um, but he, he really teaches, I think, the right way to approach the business as a professional, be a resource to the industry, probatemastery.com. Probate master. And then another question is, um, can we do reverse... Uh, I'm looking at my note. Can we do reverse, uh, um, like whose attorneys with that property? Like I know the client, I know they have no, they have an executor is a niece and nephew doesn't show up. I know have a client, they have no children. And how would I know who's their attorney is and to be connected to them? How would I, is there any public record or some kind of a record I can right. find out? Right, so in one resource you can have I don't know about Contra Costa County, what's available for free online. In some cities or counties, you can search public records online and find out the, if you know the, the decedent's name and it'll have the attorney that filed the case perhaps available. If not, you also can subscribe to services. On my website, thelaprobateexpert.com, I have on the far right um, probate resources and a list of different data sources. You can buy a data source in your county for like $70, $80, $90 a month and get all the filings without the case numbers, the petitioners, and the attorneys. So that's what I do. I buy the data, and that way I have a research of them. So you're the reason I get all the calls. No, I don't call. I don't email. Or, the opposite. What happens to me is people come to me with a property, and it's in probate, and I can look it up and see who the attorney is, and, if, and I, I can judge. Is the case going to happen, not going to happen? And um, But, yeah, no, I don't actually market directly that way. I, I, I know companies sell that as a marketing uh, approach, I wouldn't do it. Uh, now, I might, you know, if I had a client who knew who knew Zach, right? I might have a client who's a divorce attorney or a client who's a um, DUI attorney or a corporate merge acquisition attorney, I might say, well, you, by chance, you know, a colleague who does probates, I'd like to learn more. And I might call Zach and say, hey, Zach, I'm Bill Gross, I'm not soliciting for business. I'm, I'm learning the probate business. I'm a real estate agent. I'd love to learn more. Can I buy you lunch sometime in San Diego? Be available on Tuesday or Wednesday for lunch. And if I'm nice and I sound like I'm not going to bite his head off and slash his throat with my business card, you might. What would you say to, to an invitation for lunch? I, I would. I say yes all the time. But I like the network. I'm out there hustling. Um, there you go. But I would say typically estate planning and probate attorneys, not pro, not probate litigators, probate administration attorneys, they got typically got into that line of work because it's a little bit more mellow. Um, you got a nice life balance. So they're more receptive to, to networking calls and meetings and lunches and coffees than they have more time than I probably would have um, as a litigator. 
Um, so if, if, if you're looking to meet with somebody that has litigation as a primary practice of them, they're going to have, they're going to be a little bit more difficult to get a hold of versus a solo that does probate administration and estate planning. They probably don't work on Friday and go home at four o'clock on Thursday kind of type of life balance. But if you're hunting big game, just bring a bigger gun and uh, stock them a little better. There you go. Nizzy? Well, yes, the last question, where do you go network? <laughs> where do you I go do, network, exactly? I do a lot of my networking with other attorneys um, and, and then real estate agents. This is a huge source of business for me. Um, title reps. Title reps are huge. Um, I get four or five messy probate cases a week from title reps um, because they'll, they'll look at it and they'll think we're, we're all set and then they get into escrow and then they try to go write title insurance and they can't for some reason underwriting says no. And then they call me and say, Hey, can you fix this problem and save escrow? And sometimes I can, sometimes I can't, but um, if I can, I'll give it a shot. I've managed to do that a couple of times recently where we save it in escrow, but you got to get creative, but the title is a huge area um, to get in touch with attorneys that do this work. Great. And if your title rep doesn't have a probate attorney, they need one. And <laughs> you can give them my card. <laughs> no. okay. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lizzie. Uh, question timeline in San Diego County. What's the timeline from you filed the initial for the initial um, uh, petition? What's the time to the initial hearing in San Diego County currently? It's about two and a half months, I would say. Um, but with, with one of our judges retiring and a new judge coming in, I, I just had a filing that got set for November and then <sighs> immediately rescheduled for January. So I'm not sure what San Diego County is going to look like in the next couple of months when we transition from one, with the new judge coming in. Uh, but it usually is about two to three months before you get your initial hearing. Then you're, if, you, if you've done it right, you get your letters of administration on that day. Then your state's open for four months. Then you can, if you're in position to file for final distribution, your hearing's about two months after that. So best case scenario, if you're, if you're very efficient, you're looking eight to 10 months for administration. Two and a half months for that initial hearing. Ouch. Well, you need Even your 30 days. You need your, your publication date. So you need at least your 30, 30 plus days for notice and your service and publication. So you get, you get a, a month cushion. For me, it's needed because I'm too busy. But for solos, it's a nice wait. Yeah. Um, question from Ian. Um, as a real estate professional, again, this is about business development for realtors. Um, how do they how can they or can they provide value to you to earn your business? You know, um, uh, is there is there value that we would give you that would help with your clients? Is there administrative help? Is there information of value to you? What what would be a value to you to um, help earn your business? If I have a property that's being sold through probate and the, the agent is familiar with probate and they demonstrate they're familiar with probate, they've earned my business because it is a very different sale than your ordinary sale. And if you can handle most of the forms without me needing to review them three, four times, tell you, hey, the name on the listing agreement is not the person's individual name. You need it as the estate being the listing agent or the listing party. So knowing those little details so that I don't have to fix your forms four or five times, that's a huge relief for me to not have to stress that the next half of the, the transaction is going to be frustrating. Um, so being, being a, demonstrating your knowledge into probate sales 
well, it'd be huge for me because I rarely run into agents that know how to do a probate sale. Um, so that's, that's a big thing. And so just for those listening, see what he just said, two different things. One is he's basically available and not saying he personally, imagine him as the, as the um, avatar of an attorney that you would do business with. He's basically available to network. He's so if you have a good meeting of interest to a probate attorney, he's somewhat interested to begin with. Maybe the local bar association mixer or whatever, call him up and say, hey, I'm going. Are you planning to be there? I'd love to buy a drink and meet you there. He's going to say yes if he's going or he might go otherwise. Imagine if you find out that Zach's a fan of the Dodgers or Padres or Chargers. Well, Chargers aren't there anymore, I guess. Sorry about that. Sorry, subject. Um, <laughs> you might be you might be going to a game to socialize or play golf, whatever it is Zach does. You might be interested to do that, possibly. But but really, just do your job properly is not that difficult. We all look for some magic pill. If I, if I gave you this, would you do business with me? The answer is, well, no, because you're an idiot and you don't have to fill out the real estate forms. We're not going to do business again. Is that a good summary? Yes. Make my life a little <laughs> bit easier. I'm very, very happy. So, as long Absolutely. as it's less work for me, I'm ecstatic. So that's, that's the best, best option. One of the topics that I've gotten really involved with is probate advances, where people who can't afford to pay for the attorney fees up front, but have equity and not, not that the attorney looks at it as a contingency, but a third party is one to advance the money um, to allow the customer to get an attorney based on service, not based on the price. Do you see that as a tool regularly? Is that a tool that you use? Do you have a vendor that you work with and recommend, or is it something that you don't like to see? I think if you can avoid a probate advance, you should. Um, the, the interest rates on them are astronomical. Um, it is predatory loans, to my, in my opinion. So if you need to take a probate advance, make it very, very small. Um, I don't have regulars I work with because I try to typically avoid them if possible. One area I do find a lot of is if there is real property to be listed, a lot of agents are willing to front the necessary fees to the attorney as long as they get to be the listing agent and then they get reimbursed out of escrow. That's a great option for yeah. a, an agent to secure the business and get the client moving forward if they don't have cash on hand to pay for the attorney. Um, similarly, if you want to help renovate the property and take the proceeds out of escrow, that's a common thing as well. So if you're doing a service to your client, helping advance some costs, I don't, it doesn't matter to me where the cash comes from, as long as I have the cash to work with my necessary filing fees, um, I'd rather do it in that option with an agent that's willing to front it at a no, a no percentage return out of escrow versus a 50% inheritance advance. That to me is a better option. Um, interesting. Okay, good. I mean, I think generally you're right. I would agree with you on the, that it is very expensive money and can be predatory. And, but I also know sometimes I've brought clients to attorney like you rather than one that's cheap because now they have the necessary advance to get the right attorney rather than the one that will tell them the price is less. And like anything yeah. in life, cheap sometimes isn't good value. Sometimes it's, there's no way around it and it has to happen. And it's a good option there for some people, but I do think it should be a last resort. Um, if we have to go there, I don't, if, if I don't have to recommend it, I'm not going to recommend it. Yeah. Uh, Matt asked a question. Um, 
uh, person decedent passes away, the executor is old. I assume that means not doesn't have capacity as well. So does that executorship go to the executor's executor or is it decided by the attorney of court? So I think the question is if you have a trust and the um, successor trustee isn't competent, I guess you could have multiple successor trustees in order based on that, correct? Well, you should. If the drafting attorney doesn't put backup trustees, they've done a disservice to the client. They're, they're, I, I require three in the trust side draft. That because you can't force somebody to be your trustee or executor, you could. That's right. a request. You're asking them to do this job, right. oftentimes for little to no compensation. So uh, the people will decline often. If you name right. a bank and your estate's not worth five million dollars, Chase is going to decline service. So having backups, and it will go to the backup you've identified in your testamentary document. Um, if Grandpa passes away and his son is primary, and the grandson secondary but son is not got capacity or unwilling or unable to serve, then it would pass to, to the son, not to some other agent that was listed under the son's testamentary documents. So we don't, we don't worry about his estate at this time. We worry about the grandpa's estate. So whichever estate we're truly dealing with, their testamentary wishes hold. Right, and if, and if you have an executor, and I've seen this happen with the executor passed away, um, the question I think is, is the, is the executor now the executor's executor? No, because it, he, it's based on the decedent's testimony documents. If he has substitutes, you go to the next one. If he doesn't have substitutes, now you have a problem, right? People petition to be the executor at that point. Yeah, if the, pass, if, the, if, the, if the administrator has passed away, you need to bring a new petition to get a new administrator appointed. That person yeah. no longer has authority. It doesn't automatically yeah. pass to the next person. You have to get a court approval, court appointment for that position. And so you're, you're almost back at ground one. We have one of those cases where in our our process of petitioning or appointment, between between appointment and letters being issued, the client passed away. And so it happens. We're essentially doing a double probate now because you you've we have to administer the primary estate, get a new representative appointed. And then before we can make final distribution, we have to have this secondary estate open to receive their, their inheritance because it's vested. If they've outlived that person, their inheritance is vested. And then we have to basically do a double probate. Oh, two cases there. Yeah. Um, um, I think Ivan goes back to our, some of our initial talking. A trust can be challenged by a family member if they're not party to the trust. I think the answer is, you, you don't know if you're a party or not. You have to find out if you're a family member. You're entitled to find out if you're if you're uh, entitled or not in your in uh, the contents of the trust. Correct? Yeah, I mean, more often than not, my clients are not beneficiaries of the trust, and that's why we're challenging. If if you were a beneficiary and you're happy with everything, oftentimes you're not in my office. We're not fighting at that point. Everybody still gets along for now. Right. Um, uh, Zach mentioned a case where the judge had to check with the magistrate and, and grant his argument to save the foreclosure. What was the strategy? I think we talked about that where there's a way you can save the foreclosure by being appointed as a temporary um, and then um, uh, using ex parte, get appointed temporary and then court approval, but at least the money is now kept in the in this state. I think we covered that. Um, can an entity, LLC or corporation be appointed as an administrator or does it have to be a, a person? person from my understanding i've never had i've never had an entity seek appointment um so i guess i don't i don't i don't think an entity can be appointed from Got my it. understanding 
Um, okay, and yeah, okay, and we got a lot of comments about the Zoom bomber. Sorry about that, guys. Um, the two successors, if you be allowed, can they assign one of the beneficiaries to appoint the successor trustee? I'm not sure I understand that question. We're kind of out of time, so um, there are two successors. I mean, think of these errors, and they decide they don't want to act due to no fee being allowed. Oh, I see. Two successor trustees, neither wants to do it because they don't, for whatever reason, they're not going to get paid. Can they assign one of the beneficiaries for the appointment to the successor trustee? So when you say trustee, that's the trust. I guess it's based on the rules of trust. What if none of the named people want the job? They all say, no, I can't really be involved with it. What happens? Well, then, and, and intestate heir can petition the court for appointment. Um, you're basically seeking instructions from the court on who should be the trustee at that point. Um, it's not uncommon. It, it does happen where everybody refuses to serve. It, that's why it's very important in your conversations drafting your trusts to pick wisely. You don't, you don't pick a poor trustee. You pick somebody that's will, more likely than not willing to serve and going to do a good job serving. You don't pick somebody that's a drug addict to be your trustee. You don't pick somebody that's gone through three bankruptcies to be your trustee. You pick a trusted person for a reason. So that's a huge part of our conversation in the trust, the trust drafting process is who is your trustee? We talk more about who is your trustee than we talk about what you want to happen to your stuff. I had a family member uh, who once appointed me as a trustee. We had this conversation. And then one day called me and she was concerned and said, well, you know, because of I'm the oldest sibling and for whatever reasons I was going to be a beneficiary of something. She thought my sister, my youngest sister should be the trustee instead of me. And I thought, that's great. And I'm watching the administration of this thing with the emails because the documents and, and my sister's married and they're very successful, a lot of traveling and lives a great life. Just isn't involved with the stuff at all. Meanwhile, I'm watching these emails. Where's the 1099? Where's this form? Where's that form? You have to go to Social Security to get the replacement 1099 form. It's a lot of detail. It's a real job. And that's why the statute allows people to get paid as the administrator of a probate You're subject to approval, right? It's it's a job. It's not it's not volunteer work. Yeah, if you're if you're administering a state as administrator in probate, not a trust administration, but in probate, you're you're Statutory compensation is the same as the attorneys. You get the yeah. same percentage as the attorney, yeah. which can can be very profitable, especially if you have a competent attorney who does all the work for you, which I, I tend to do. I don't trust any. If I, if I don't do the work, I don't trust it was done properly. So I'm very much a control freak in that regard. So Nice. Okay, last question. Aziz got her hand up, both a real life hand and her Zoom hand. So yes. because you're so diligent, Aziz will give you one more question and we'll wrap hey. up. So you as an attorney, Zach, when I write a, my uh, trust and you goes to my grandkids, I'm making I don't have a grandkids, but do you go directly and file in a courthouse right away and or you wait until I'm dead and then the uh, executor handle that? How does that work? Well, if you have a trust that in theory is a private document, um, if you're not subject to litigation, that does remain a private document. Nothing, a, a trust is not recorded. It's not lodged anywhere. It's not a public document. The only inclination we would have that you have a trust is when we title your property into trust. So that trust transfer deed will list a trust as receiving the recipient of the property, which if you've passed away and your family comes to me and says, hey, what do we do? 
I pull your chain of title and I go, hey, look, there's a trust. It transferred into a trust transfer deed. Oftentimes the attorney's name is the, the one recording the document. So I can find who drafted the trust and track it down that way. Um, but the the contents of the trust, unless we're in litigation, remain private. That's not that's not recorded. So that's that's one of the huge benefits of a trust is the private nature of it. So when I'm dead, no one knows. And so how would that work? It just nobody doesn't know I'm dead and I'm I'm making this up. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> and so it takes a week or two weeks or how long until they find out and then so it's it's private between attorney and the client, right? It just Yeah, I mean somebody somebody finds the body and then reaches out to an attorney and um if we I usually say let's take some time to mourn first and foremost, and then we when we move on with administration, if it's through probate or through trust administration, it's a very different process. So if we're doing trust administration, we don't have to go to court for permission. We do our, our necessary forms and our filings, and then we administer the trust. If we have to go through probate, then we have to make filings into certain times. Um, by law, you're supposed to file probate if there's a will, and you're supposed to lodge a probate within so many days of the decedent passing but if there's if it's all held in trust and there's no need for a probate then we're not gonna we're not gonna probate the estate and we're not gonna record anything we just administer the trust and do it all under the trust so if no one say anything then nobody doesn't know the person passed away and you as an attorney you don't uh, you wouldn't know right if it's not recorded or anything like that i can no, I mean, if I'm, the coroner doesn't call me <laughs> so i uh, the family, well, also, some family will contact me eventually. I think it's also true, isn't it, Zach, that you can't really publicize that you did the trust, that that's a private document representing and you're representing your client. I see oftentimes people saying, you know, can I find somebody who drafted a trust for, you know, name so-and-so? And I saw an attorney, um, you know, uh, kind of reprimand him and say, you can't, even if it's you, you can't answer because it's not your place to respond to that inquiry. Um, is that true? That's how private is supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, attorney-client privilege is there for a reason. I don't, I don't recognize whose trusts I've drafted while they're living. Um, once they pass away, privilege somewhat dies with them. Some privilege continues on. There's a lot of details about that. But for the most part, if I've drafted a trust and I've been contacted by the family that says they passed away and they provide me documentation that they passed, I will provide them copies of what I've done. Um, because they need it to administer the estate. Um, but uh, absent them having passed away, I'm not giving a copy to anybody. It's that's their that's my attorney client privilege still remains and that's their that's their documents. Thank you. Thank you, Nazi. Thanks. Zach, thanks so much. I really think we covered a lot. Went really fast. We have more questions. I have a lot more I'd love to ask sometime. I've enjoyed talking in the past and hope we can continue. Um uh, you're in San Diego, California, yep. and you do probate probate litigation, estate planning, and then your firm does more, including uh, well-known for family law, divorces and such. Um, if someone want to get in contact with you and talk to you about a particular case, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, uh, just give a call to our office. Our direct line is 619-696-1100. And Great. ask for reception to patch you through to me. If I'm available, I'll, I always take the call um, if I'm available. And he does. I've called him and he's picked up the phone for even for me. So and we'll put the information in the chat notes. Jack, thank you so much. I appreciate your help and willingness to share with us. And hopefully we're going to improve our business. And then in San Diego, bring you some people you can help and, and help us as well. Thanks so much. Of course. Thank you for having me.
Wraps it up. Hey, this is probably weekly every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. We live stream it on YouTube and Facebook. If you're there watching, we'd love to have you come and participate. You can register to be live, probateweekly.com. You get reminders and such as well. If you have questions, put them in the chat box. Either I'll get them or I'll get them to Zach if it needs his special attention. Thank you for all those with questions. Nazi, especially, thank you. Matt, thank you so much, everybody. Appreciate your support. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.